uh, one of the biggest difference, and uh, there are a lot of similarities, but one of the biggest difference between a marriage and stock investing, and I hope this is something you agree with, uh, is that uh, you cannot diversify, mm. right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so as you rightly pointed out, who you who you choose, right, is uh, very very crucial. And you know, in stocks, we have criterias like you have yours where you make sure that there's a long runway and things like that. And you know, how should people who want to create wealth in stocks through especially the value investing method, what are some of the, for lack of better word, criterias that you, you need to have in your, in, your, in your experience when you choose a, a, a spouse? When I choose a spouse. Mm. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be very important. Oh, right? wow, MJ. Yes, yes. Oh, it's becoming more of a Last personal question, question for <laughs> yourself. <laughs> it's more for him. It's, and it's more for our listeners. Hey, Stanley, me and you, we cannot portfolio, we cannot portfolio allocate, we cannot yeah, do the cannot diversification. Yeah, you know. Unless you, unless you, you know, you, yeah, you, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I, I would say, I would say, uh, marriage and portfolio maybe one one side of it is quite similar which is if you have a concentrated portfolio <laughs> uh, it's quite similar to having a marriage you either make it or you don't make it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, on the other side if you have a diversified uh, portfolio uh, to me it's better but if you have a diversified marriage uh, most likely you'll die a thousand Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six-Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firl.co slash free. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Firel Podcast, best place for long-term stock investors. Today, we don't just have a special guest, but an old friend. Yep. Uh, you know, we are actually in the same industry, him a lot longer than us. Yeah. And you know he's a veteran, basically. Uh, right? In Malay, we call Otai, Otai. Otai, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely, uh, you know, from, from the good old days, right? Yeah. But still, still very vibrant. In fact, you can argue more vibrant today in yeah. the YouTube scene, especially. So just to give you a background uh, about guests, he used to be a writer at Motley Fool. Mm-hmm. Right? For those of you who don't know, maybe John, you want to explain what is Motley Fool to you? Yeah, Motley Fool kind of like opened my eyes to the US market because of uh, the subscription service. And uh, they were very good at running uh, marketing campaigns. Uh, so I was hooked. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a, a newsletter subscription. Yeah, I think it's one of the best uh, like a learning sort of repository for retail investors. Correct. That would be how I'll describe Motley Fool. It's yeah. a global company. Now he's currently the founder of Value Invest Asia. He also manages um, the the day-to-day operations. You know, there's a lot of really good quality articles on the website. Do go check it out whenever you're free. Uh, he also has a YouTube channel. It used to be called Value Invest Asia. Now it's called Invest with Stanley with over 24K subs. 
And if you're a member of his uh, of Value Invest Asia, you actually get to see his real legit seven digit portfolio. And he's also, just as a side note, the director of Pastec International, which is a Malaysian listed company. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Stanley Lim. Hello, thank you, MJ, for that uh, very, very extensive introduction. And hello, John, how are you? Fine, thank you. Uh, even with that extensive, we also forgot to... Uh, Stanley, can you point to your book? Uh, it's on your oh, top. Oh, yeah. Okay. Top, uh, wait. <laughs> left, also right. Author. Mirror image. Yeah, mirror, yeah, there, yeah. He's also yeah. an author. Uh, I, I highly, highly recommend yes. the book. Uh, it's called Value Invest in Asia. Now, I think Stanley has copies that he personally signed. Obviously, there is yeah. a premium to the signature and I think you should, <laughs> it's well worth the premium. So, I think we can, we can start there, right, uh, Stanley, which is... Uh, why do you write a book? And I think what's interesting about the title of your book, which is Value Investing in Asia, is that it seems to have a more Asian focus. Yes. But given the thousands uh, of books, tens of thousands of books out there on Value Invest Asia, why do you decide to give it a go? Right. Uh, so, of course, uh, I have to say this book is not written by me alone. Uh, it's ah. co-written with uh, my, my, my good friend and co-founder, uh, Chong Man Hong, as well. Uh, we basically, I think we spend, uh, is, uh, the, the memory is a, a little bit fuzzy now. I think we spent <laughs> close to two years in writing this book. Wow. And we write through, I think, five to six drafts of it, uh, rewritten re- re- wow. over and over again. <laughs> so so why, why we have this, why we decide to embark in such a foolish endeavor is uh, because at the beginning when we were, uh, investing, I, I started out investing quite a while ago. That's why you called me a veteran. <laughs> but uh, what I found is even, I, I, you know, I, I, w- I would bunker myself in the library and, and read out all the investment books I can find. Most of them still revolve around, uh, if you're value investors, lah, you revolve around, uh, number one, Warren Buffett, mm. and it revolve around uh, US stocks. Mm. And it's very, very hard to find a book that at least I feel is uh, of of a certain quality that 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 dive deep into understanding the Asian stock market. Mm. And for us, we you know I started out investing in the Malaysian market and then later moved on to the Singapore market and Hong Kong market. Uh, but what I found is the there's still a lot of value and good companies mm. to be offered in 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 Asia. But the main problem is just. The, the exposure and the coverage of them is much weaker compared to the US stocks. So that that's our main idea behind it. And we want to to create uh, at least, I would, I would say, a, a more interesting sort of textbook mm. for people who is interested to invest in Asia and uh, sort of introduce that, not just for Asian investors, or maybe Western investors who are interested to tag onto the growth of Asia and uh, explain a little bit to them what is the nuances that you have to look out for uh, when you're investing in Asia. And especially uh, later on we, in the book, uh, in the later chapter, we also interview uh, many great investors in Asia and look at their investment style and also some of their uh, track records and some of the companies that uh, we all look at. I so see. before I ask you about the nuances, because uh, I, I think that's pretty interesting. I don't know. I think all of us who want to know who have never written a book before, right? Uh, can make money. Yeah. <laughs> we write a book. Uh, short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're thinking of 
writing a book and become a millionaire, I, I would uh, discourage you from it. Uh, but the whole uh, publishing process, what I found out is um, the publishing process is actually quite interesting. And mm. the publishing hub of the world, at least for English language books, is still centered around London and wow. New York. Okay. Huh. So that's why I feel uh, unless you are like really from from there or you're stationed there and you are being pu uh, you are published by the office in London and uh, New York, uh, it's actually quite hard to you know create like a like a viral book lah. I see. Uh, if you're outside of those hub. I see. Uh, that's act at least from our personal experience a few years back, I don't know if it's changes now. Uh, I think it should be better now because, uh, you know, from online publishing, it, uh, many are doing it directly through Amazon or what. Uh, it really opens up the field, I, I would say. I see. Uh, for, for more books to, to reach wider audience. I see. Yeah, but but your publisher was actually quite famous also. It's because Wiley, right? Wiley is very famous for, <coughs> I think, textbooks or even great lit, uh, works as well, right? Was it difficult? in a way to get to get them to convince them to publish your books? Uh, so we pitched to quite a number of publishers, but luckily uh, Wiley agrees to take us up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I would say, yeah, um, the whole process was okay, but I would say the support wasn't that extensive, you know, if if I would say compared to if, if we are... Uh, we are published under the London office. Uh, we are published under the Singapore office. So I see. I, I would say the at least uh, I feel the support level could be better. Understand. Understand. Mm. Right. Yeah. Okay. We uh, you know I mentioned about nuance later, but I want to pair with our discussion about China later, which I think is a very big aspect of the content you create and even your own investment uh strategy, right? Yeah. But I just want to dial back, right? Dial back to the first day you got into contact with investing and. Mm. How do you discover it? Why do you start investing? Mm, okay. So, uh, if memory serves me right, uh, uh, that happens about, I think, close to 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I just graduated and um, I realized that, you know, uh, my first job was, I, I was working in Malaysia at the time, but um, I, I realized that to reach financial freedom from just working might be quite a hard thing to do mm. uh, right uh, at the time that's what I, what I thought so uh, I wanted to accelerate that a, a little bit and I was lucky enough um, that at the beginning when I first uh, came out I don't have much I don't have a student loan mm. I was lucky enough that uh, my parents supported me through my my education and mm. I I gotten a small sum from from them to kickstart my career la, at least and uh, so i have a, a small basket of funds and that's that's how i decided that you know instead of you know maybe buying the new car i should <laughs> i should <laughs> uh, learn about investing from from that so uh, i dive into investing I, I guess because of my temperament which is more laid back and slow so uh, value investing kind of uh, appeal to me more than say a trading or stock or whatever. So so I end up learning more about that and getting fascinated. I think like most people fascinated about uh, Buffett and learning everything from him, you know, uh, every kind of writing that I can find, read all the books about him. Uh, that's how I started and, and started dabbling into the, 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 the Malaysian market during that time. 
of yeah. course. Uh, but the first two years, uh, I would say, is uh, is is an educational right lah until the financial crisis. I see. Okay, what is that right? You gotta tell us, man. You can't just <laughs> tell us there's a right that I'm just leaving there. Uh, the baptism of fire. <laughs> so, so basically, I would say the first two years because uh, that was two thousand and five, two thousand and six, all the way to the financial crisis. It was a bull market, uh. So almost everything uh, I buy was going up. So at that time, if you're just starting out and and everything that you buy was uh, going up, then you might gain some certain of. Uh, confidence right and mm. it might reach a point of uh, sometimes arrogance as well mm. uh, so that of course um, so the first two years I would say uh, I, I started thinking that you know oh, investing is not that hard <laughs> and I kind of get the hang of it no, no problem uh, only until the financial crisis when I heard you know, Lehman Brothers uh, collapse uh, I don't even know who, who is Lehman Brothers <laughs> you know is it uh and after learning uh, uh, from that experience that my portfolio, I think, dropped 60, 60 plus wow. percent mm. during that time. And I refused to sell, uh, mainly because I, I was still tied down to the idea that, you know, when it goes down, we have to buy more and buy more. So I was actually buying more and more and more uh, until the point where I have no more money, mm -hmm. but it's still going down. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really... Uh, brought back the humility in, in my investing journey la, and uh, learned about things like, you know, sometimes the market is acting uh, against rational and and you just have to ride it out. And, and just because the stock go up doesn't necessarily mean that you are right. Sometimes mm. you're just lucky. La. And a lot of times I uh, when I retrospectively look back into my investment, uh, a lot of them, are, you know, I was, I was just lucky at the beginning. I see. I see. Mm -hmm. and, and your exposure at that point was mainly because your office is based out of Singapore. Uh, but mm. what, at that point, was your portfolio concentration mainly within Singapore or outside the region? Uh, during the financial crisis, I was still working in Malaysia. Uh -huh. I think I only I only went to Singapore to work in the I can't remember 2013 or 14. I see. So yeah, so I, at that time I was just uh, investing in in. Uh, uh, in the Malaysian market. Uh -huh. So yeah, in some of the stocks that I bought, mm, I would say uh, these are stocks that I I wouldn't dare to touch at the moment. <laughs> and you wouldn't dare <laughs> to name on now. this podcast yeah. also, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of them still listed, so <laughs> let's just leave it at that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay, so you know, I think what I, I drew from what you said was basically just because the stock goes up, um, doesn't mean you're right. And also just because it goes down, sometimes you know you, you might be wrong in the short run and you have to ride it out, right? So mm. what are the like key lessons, you know, now with the benefit of you know ten year old or more hindsight, right? What do you think are some of the biggest lessons that you learn from that experience? And then how did you kind of get out of that pit, right? Because you just told us you dropped sixty percent in your portfolio, obviously or at least I hope today that is still not the case, right? So how did you bounce back? Yep. So I would say there's a few key lessons yeah. that uh, I, I learned. Of course, not directly after the crisis, then I suddenly become enlightened. Of course. It took uh, a few years after that also as the market recovers and then I uh, sort of experiment with different style and find the style that kind of works for me. Mm. Um, but what I found is that the first thing that we have to do is actually just be more humble la. Mm. Uh, even to ourselves. Mm. even to mm. ourselves, right um, every time a stock 
when we buy a stock, uh, regardless of how well we analyze the stock, there is cert- a certain amount of uncertainty yes. uh, to it. And that is why we have to diversify a portfolio, right? If I found the stocks that I'm so optimistic about and I'm, I feel so convicted that it is going to be a great, then, you know, to me, I just buy one stock. That's enough. But I don't do that because I I know that uh, if I do that, it's almost like just, you know, taking a bet, uh, yeah. whether it hits or not, right? I could uh, be lucky and, you know, invest 100% in Tesla, but I could also be unlucky and invest 100% in a company that's no longer around. Yeah. So, so that's the first thing that I learned, just to understand that there are some things just outside of control of your analysis. And that's even outside the control of, say, the, the CEO or some, the management running the business. Mm. There's just inherent risk with businesses. Yeah. And so uh, it's important for us to diversify. Uh, and every time when you start to feel that you're getting cocky a little bit, <laughs> I think you should slow yourself down. Mm. You should slow yourself down. Um, and, and also, uh, second thing that I realized is on the temperament and the emotion that you experience during a crisis and during the stock market. Mm. So we always feel, you know, when we learn about investing, we, 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 we learn the mantra like, oh, be greedy when others are fearful, be fearful when others are greedy. And we assume that we can be the one that control our own emotion while others are, you know, they are, they are mere uh, mortals that they, <laughs> yeah. will follow the crowd. But the truth is we are part of the crowd as well. So when the market is fearful, most likely I will be fearful as well. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, same, is the, the same is true for the other, the other side if market is booming. So I would say uh, try to don't, think too highly of ourselves <laughs> and and always be honest to your own feelings. Like if you feel that you are getting panicky, it's it's a good sign that other people are panicky as well. Mm. And um, maybe you can train yourself to to act differently. But uh, you know the, the 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 best thing is if you don't have the courage to really act when you're in a total panic, uh just learn how to not panic sell. Mm. Uh, at least mm. and and that's good enough i think that's yeah. good enough because over the long term uh if you pick the the right high quality companies they they will still come out on top yeah right? even if you don't buy at the bottom yeah so one thing I, I i find interesting about what you just said was about uh having self-knowledge about your emotions and how you know yeah you can say i'm very good I read all the books, but then when the time comes, you act very differently. You act like the sheep, right? That you were so against a few months ago. But my question is, what are some of the tips you have to manage the emotions uh, exactly? So uh, from what I hear, one of them is to stay diversified, right? So that you can manage volatility. What are some of the other tips and tricks that you have? Okay, so uh, this sort of evolved over time. what I found is at the beginning, I was a very kind of deep value investor. Mm. So mm. I focus a lot on the valuation of a stock. Mm. And I always, uh, when the first thing that I, I, I found a stock, I will look at, oh, is this stock cheap? And then I buy it. And low then I monitor it. Yeah, low PE, monitor it. I keep, have to keep monitoring it uh, at the point and then you sell and then you do, do that back again. Mm. Uh, and that uh, hasn't worked out that great for me because uh, 
number one, I end up having to constantly monitor the mm. stock, the, my portfolio. Mm. And when I keep looking at the portfolio, then I'll be affected whenever the market uh, uh, has a sudden swing. I understand. So, so uh, be, being myself, I know that uh, I, I might, I might uh, face this kind of uh, fear in the market. Uh, over time, what I do is I just focus on stocks that are number one, very simple to understand mm. and has a very long runway uh, mm. that I feel can, will continue to grow and grow and grow and grow. So uh, a, a simple example would be a company like uh, maybe Apple. Mm. Right? So it's so, such a huge company, but at the end of the day, their business model is very simple. They are a, a tech hardware and software company and they focus on a uh, very high quality and high, almost like a luxury brand of electronics, mm. right? So if we still believe that electronics will actually become more and more uh, encircled into our life, then the future is still far from over. Right? Mm. Yeah, now they're talking about going to Apple car because car, if it's using a uh, battery, then sort of car is sort of uh, electronic as well, yeah. Yeah. right? Even they came up with the tech right now, now there's the <laughs> Apple tech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's pretty smart. So you see, th th those are the things that uh, I tend to look at. So if uh, today, uh, okay, disclosure, I do own Apple, la, but if I look at it, <laughs> if I look at it, okay, so I believe in this long-term trend of electronics going to be more more and more uh, encircled into our life. And I believe that Apple will be one of the key companies in it. Then all I do is I buy this company one time. Mm. And as long as that thesis hold true that electronics is still going to be key uh, in the future, then I don't really focus and monitor on it. And mm. today, if you ask me what is Apple's share price, I don't really know. Even I have been holding it for you know over the past five years, but it, I I don't really look at it uh, day to day. And that's that's sort of true for all my portfolio, the my whole portfolio, where I just select these kind of stocks that I buy one time. And I would say, if not for my work, I might check my portfolio maybe once a year. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Hear that guys? Once a year. Because we teach like our our students, right? To check maximum four times a month. Yeah. And here we are one times. <laughs> Have to this one is uh Mong Mong level yeah. <laughs> You know, you know, you know one thing that strikes me very interesting about your style, right? Actually, uh, when I first encountered it, and we talk about how you diversify later on. But what I found interesting, right? When I look at what you do, actually, you are almost like a business collector. Mm -hmm. Okay. What you do is, is like, you know, let's say you have a, you know, like trading cards or mm -hmm. stamps. Yeah, stamps. All these things that you, you can just kind of buy it. And you're right, right? Like if I buy a, a Pokemon card, let's say, I don't look at it <laughs> yeah. you know, every day or, yeah. or every week, right? I just buy it, yeah. put it, store it nicely, keep it nice, don't even look at it. Yeah. And then five years later, I can sell it for higher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you view, you know how I view his, right? I, I thought he was running a Stanley ETF. You know? That, that's how, because, <laughs> and we'll talk about his portfolio later, yeah, this yeah, stuff, yeah. basically. But that your impression was mini business collector. For me, I looked at it, right? Man, I think Stanley should just charge an index fee, you know? Yeah, man. <laughs> follow, yeah. follow Stanley's portfolio, and then yeah. there's, a, there's a fee for following this index, you know, ETF. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I know it's a little bit annoying, but I want to tell you something that I think can be really helpful to you. I can tell you're really interested in the stock market and want to learn more about it so that you actually know what you're doing, especially when today things are getting more complex and complicated. 
That's why we came up with the Stock Investing Blueprint or SIB. It's our signature e-learning program that teaches you how to pick the right stocks most of the time, buy and sell it at the best possible time and manage your stock portfolio systematically. It currently has more than 10 hours of content and it's growing. You'll also be part of a group of like-minded investors that can help speed up your learning process. To hop on the program, click on the link in the description or go to learn.viral.co slash courses slash SIB. Now, building onto that, right, I think what I find very interesting also is that it's such a low effort strategy. Yeah. And I think that is very attractive to people, right? Correct. So the next question is, okay, given that your effort is low strategy, given that your effort is ETF-like, okay, mm. what are your target returns? Like what do, you, what do you think in your view is a good return to get from the stock market doing what you do? And also if you, if you wouldn't mind, just share with us what have you uh, achieved based on what you've done over the okay. years. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I would say at this point of time, I don't really have a fixed target return anymore for my portfolio. Uh, the, the, why I still continue to have a portfolio and keep it in stocks is just as a protection against uh, inflation, mm. right? Uh, at the end of the day, I do feel that owning asset is much better than owning cash. Mm. Um, and I, I rather... Uh, I rather just own stocks uh, with with my wealth, and how how I come to that conclusion is basically I spend quite a long period of time staring at the Forbes billionaire list, ah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I I scroll through right every one of them, every one of them I look at them, how they grow their wealth. Yeah, and you know if you just take out the extremely brilliant people who created businesses or or whatever. Uh, that like the mind blowing businesses, Amazon's like your, and, like, yeah, yeah. Your Amazons and your and your Bill Gates. Uh, the most of them actually built their wealth by uh the stocks in, in their company. Yep. So they they might no longer be active in the company, but they still own a majority or a big stake of in in the company. Uh, these great companies, and to me, that's why I I realized that if all these uh you know the top one percent are the people uh they they are storing their wealth, uh in stocks, then maybe I should follow them. Mm. So uh, MJ was talking about the collector mindset. I I think yeah, that's that's exactly true. That's how I think uh, of it. And I also think of my stocks, uh my portfolio is basically my my tabong uh. Mm. Right. Ah. My, the place that I store my wealth rather than keeping it in a fixed in 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 the bank, and you know, uh, that's, that that's actually feel, makes me feel safer. Mm. Uh, although it fluctuates uh, day in and day out, but that that doesn't matter to me. Mm, yeah, so I I would say ha- that's that's how I come to think of stocks. Uh. Mm. That's very different from I think the 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 the, the general public, right? Yeah. Which is that, you know, if you're going to treat it as something to hedge against inflation or to use your own word manabong, which for those of you who don't understand Malay, it's a piggy bank, yeah, right? It's a piggy bank. It's yeah, a deposit. It's, yeah, it's like a savings. Yeah. Right? You you mm. see, like you save money in Apple shares, yeah, rather yep. than cash. 
But yep. then some people will say that, you know, what happens if there's a market crash? What happens if your portfolio declines, you know, 30, 40%, even, you know, large cap, super stable, safe stocks also can fall by that amount, right? In Malaysia, I think Nestle, which, you know, is blue chip, blue chip, number one blue chip in Malaysia, dropped, like, I think, 40% in 2008. You know, what do you say to those people, right, who say that it's not as safe as cash? Right. Uh, I would say that uh, if you really need the cash, you know, uh, I, I, I'm hoping that you have your financial plan uh, that if you're going to spend something huge, uh, then you already know that I'm I'm going to need the money to spend it on something huge. Yeah. And if that's the case, then yeah, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't invest in the stocks. You should have it, you know, a store in a stable, stable currency and uh, be prepared to use, use, use that you know, be it you want to buy your ferrari or, or whatever <laughs> doesn't matter it's your money right you, you can choose what you want to do with it but if you're just having some excess wealth that you have no immediate need for uh it can be five years down the road maybe for your retirement 10 years down the road for your retirement or for your kids education you still have a long runway then uh i don't see why you cannot hold it in stocks even mm. if today the market crashes then I know, uh, in from past crash, uh, past crisis, mm-hmm. typically it takes you know three to maximum maybe five years, uh, it will recover back to the previous peak, right? Uh, from from the past hundred years history, la. So, if that's the case, uh, all I need is to be patient for three to five years. Mm. Then, if I don't need the money for the next three to five years, then it would it would warrant that uh, keeping the your, ca- your cash in your wealth in stocks is still much safer because I know for sure 10 years, uh, five years down the road, if you keep it in cash, it will be worth less. Yeah. Uh, it's mm. hundred, I can 100% sure that it's going to be worth less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? Have you, Where, uh, yeah. yeah. Have you studied other asset classes? I mean, you, you said that you look at the Forbes. This is actually one of my hobbies as well <laughs> to, look, to look at this. But have you actually considered other asset classes before you had this love for stocks or was it just like you saw it you fell in love with it and then you looked at some compared temporarily to other asset classes and you said it's much more superior what was there a journey for you before you selected this particular asset class yeah why stocks you know yeah why stocks yeah sorry can we repeat that question again because you got cut off okay yeah so before you chose stocks as your main asset class did you consider other asset classes and what did you find and why did you choose stocks okay um when i first started uh, i would say the range of asset for a new comer investor wasn't that much mm-hmm. there's no bitcoin then <laughs> I, uh, and basically, I'm just choosing between property or stocks. Mm. And I would say I tried investing in property as well, right? Uh, but number one, of course, it has to be a much bigger sum, uh, the initial outlay. Okay. So I I have to maybe partner with my wife to go in in a property, uh, where stocks, you know, I can start with just a few thousand dollars on my own. Mm. And what I found over the few years that I've been investing in property is... Property takes up a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work to do, right? Uh, just to man- man- manage the 
the, the agents and, and all the fees associated with, with it, like the municipal fees, the agency fees, and you know, every time there's a repair, every time a tenant moves out, there's sure something I need to repair. <laughs> so even though I'm collecting 12 month rent, at the end of the day, I would say two or three months is down the drain to give to all the fees and all the repairs that I have to do. Mm. And at the end of the day, I just feel at the end, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a very lazy person. So I just feel, <laughs> I just feel stocks just are just Apple so much well. easier. Yeah, so much easier. And if I really, really make a wrong choice, I just sell the shares, okay? Yeah. Uh, kick myself in the butt and I, I, I try again. But if I buy a wrong property, I could be stuck with it for a long, long time. Oh right? yeah, so true. <laughs> Yeah, man. You know, you, <laughs> you sound like you're speaking from experience. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Stanley. Hey, did I share with you the story? But never mind. We can we can chat offline. But I went through the same thing. What my last property that I sold was actually in Pulai. It's in your backyard, mm. and uh, I sold it for a loss. Uh. I sold it for a loss. Mm. Uh. Bought it for five. Huh? Property can lose money, man. <laughs> I, that was a <laughs> I thought it only goes up. <laughs> huh? What? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. must have a special touch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he he's rubbing salt on my wound like he knows it so. <laughs> no, no, this is for the this is for the listeners like, this yeah. is for the listeners. Yeah. So you, you know, I, I think I, I've actually never heard this part of your story before, and, and I think I want to drive a little bit deeper on the the finance portion because I think many people when they start investing, they they use it to try and solve their financial problems. Yeah. When I think, you know, investors such as yourself who are accomplished, right? You actually need to get your finances in order first, then only you start investing. So I actually have two questions related, to, uh, very practical questions related to personal finance. The first one is you say that you need your house in order first, right? Before you begin. And of course, each people have their own preferences. Like you said, you know, some people want Ferraris, some people don't. So in your case specifically, right, what was the conditions that you felt was sufficient uh, that existed first? Then only you say, okay, then I can, you know, buy a stock uh, and hold it for a very long time and I don't really care about the volatility. So that's my first question. I'll ask the second one later. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, at least from my experience, I do feel that it is much safer financially to uh, make sure you have roughly enough for mm. for yourself first, uh, and then the, you you invest in the excess. But I understand that it might not be possible for everyone, right? Mm. I was very lucky, maybe just from my family background that I I, I come from uh, quite an okay family, and I don't have to uh, worry that I have to take care of my. Uh, parents mm. or I have to give them monthly allowance or I have to pay back student loans right uh, so I, I have a great uh, starting point and mm. I, I realized that I was lucky and not everyone is uh, uh, at the at the same stage so some I met some friends who they can take a lot of risks and they got lucky right uh, to them maybe they, they feel that uh, since I come from nothing and I can take this massive risk and buy this property that I totally cannot afford. But <laughs> if I turn out, then uh, you know I become a millionaire. But if I don't make it, then I'm still back to where I am with nothing. Right. <laughs> right? Go, go big so, or go home. Ah. Yeah, some people, uh, I, I wouldn't say, I would say uh, you have to decide you know, mm. what kind of lifestyle you want. Uh, for me, maybe I'm, I just prefer to be more conservative and I have the condition to be more conservative. Mm. So uh, why not? 
right? Uh, I have the luxury to choose that I can be more conservative, and that's the that's the route I I, I end up choosing, lah. I mm. would say. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. My second question. Do you have a question? Yeah. So my second question is actually relating, and I remember this. Uh, you said it either in your videos or you said it uh, in private to me. Uh, do let me know if I got it wrong, but. As I mentioned earlier on, you actually share a seven-digit portfolio to a lot of your clients, right? And what I remember is that you were saying that this was something actually that you and your wife built together yeah. and built up. Almost like, I still remember the scene from Buck's Life. I don't know if oh, you yeah. watched Everyone started contributing to, the, the ants started contributing the rice. It's to like the Gotong Royong Pool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think that's very interesting because one, I think it's rare, but I could be wrong. You know, you guys can correct me if that's a wrong assumption of mine. But I think that's rare. And, you know, what do you actually think about, you know, husband, wife, or maybe back then girlfriend, boyfriend, team up to invest and things like that? Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, she's not in the room, right? <laughs> no, 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 she's not in the room. <laughs> I, I would say, okay, I would say, uh, actually, it worked out very well for me. And at that time, uh, before we got married, my wife was actually earning much more than me. Mm. Uh, and, it, you know, if she continued working, I think she's still going to, she's definitely uh, earning much more than me. And I was lucky in a sense because uh, when we combine our portfolio, you know, she actually is the majority contributor <laughs> to that portfolio. Can she right? veto you? Uh? <laughs> she, she put full, full, uh, full matching for uh, this EPF. Got, got, no, got, prefer, got preference share, you know. She, yeah. she Her voting rights are higher than yeah, higher voting rights, uh, I assume. <laughs> Uh, I, I would say it, it worked out pretty well for her also. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I would say it, because uh, uh, I, I actually become more serious of an investor after I got married mm. and I would say later on with with children and, and I see that uh, with some of my friends as well, you know, um, mm. it's great that you learn about investing at the early stage, but I would say really when your commitments start kicking in and mm. you feel that you need to provide for something in the future, mm. then you mm. be more disciplined in creating that nest egg for the future, mm. right? If until today I'm still single, I would say my portfolio wouldn't have grown so much mm. uh, because if if another, you know, car come along then I, I might I might be impulsed <laughs> to spend it on that car you know? <laughs> or another and, scooter uh, right and then everything uh, will, will stop compounding mm. so my advice for at least the guys out there the number one way to grow your wealth is to get married oh man <laughs> wow. MJ that's interesting you see that's that's interesting right because everyone sees marriage as a wealth black hole yeah Right, because oh, then children's coming. I have to buy a house as well. This, but you seem to be saying the opposite, which is is not a black hole. It is more like a fountain. Yeah, yeah, uh, I do think so. And you, it's I, I guess life in a way is just how you see it, right? Mm. Uh, and if you if you see the positive side of things, and uh, I I read a, I guess it's a meme, uh, okay. in the past. <laughs> uh, basically, there's a picture of two fathers right mm. and one father is basically complaining and saying that to complaining to the kids and saying uh i'm i'm poor because of you guys i have to provide for you guys whereas the other father is very happy and tell that to your kids that uh i'm rich today uh, i'm wealthy today 
because of you guys because I need to work hard to provide for you guys mm. so it's just your mentality in, in, in life and also in investing uh, and and when I got married, uh, that's sort of switched on for me. Lah. Like basically, uh, this should be something I take more serious thought about. Yeah. And uh, I, I know I was never going to be an incredible uh, business person. And okay. uh, I don't think I have the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the drive for it. And mm. investing is sort of the only way for me to uh, be serious in growing my wealth. Lah. So, so that's the path I took. Now that you mentioned that we are talking about this, now I know why Warren Buffett got married at 19. <laughs> finally, I know. Finally, yeah. I know. That's one secret people don't talk about. Yeah. Right? Talk about, oh, he's very smart. He's yeah. very, yeah, he invested at 11. Yeah, he invested at 11. No, he got married at 19. That's the <laughs> that's key. That's the real yeah. secret. That's the key. Yeah, so, exactly. I, now, I, I do have a follow-up question on that, which is related to actually pairing up as a couple, right? Because... You know, money often, I think like 50% of uh, breakups or even divorces are caused by money. Yeah. And it seems to me right now, you guys are using money more as a binding agent, essentially. Now you are actually, I, I would assume uh, that the relationship has improved uh, because of this uh, part. Obviously, you know, it's, it's seven digit, right? So my question is, how do you like split the responsibilities? How do you build that trust among both of you that you know that you can manage such a size of money and grow it consistently and not have you know much problems you haven't seen his video man where the wife challenged him he says can invest better oh oh wait yeah. oh, <laughs> tell me about it. obviously he hasn't watched that <laughs> no i know i know that there's a wife portfolio review yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know yeah, about that can. You can check it out. Yeah, <laughs> it's it great. It's pretty hilarious. Uh, the wife is saying, uh, so it's not that difficult. It should be easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> on a reference to that video, uh, my wife uh, started to kickstart a small portfolio of hers right. <laughs> uh, last year because of the market boom and she, she wanted to try it out as well. So it's still doing okay. Uh, um, but I would say... Uh, before you really think about combining a portfolio, uh-huh. uh, make sure you're choosing the. You make sure you are you are very sure that uh, you know your spouse is the one that you are gonna spend your life with, <laughs> and uh, try to have someone that at least financially have the same alignment mm. with you. Mm. Yeah. I would say uh, because both of us uh, don't really spend a lot on you know ultra luxury things or feel the need that we have to spend a lot on right. things okay right material things and uh so that's that's fine and my wife is an accountant and she you know accountant are very very calculated <laughs> so she, she knows she knows the value of money mm. uh and uh it, it comes to we we have a um Understanding right, uh, right that money should actually be safe and invested rather than you know just keep in the bank or rather just uh, just just spend it. Um, so I would say yeah, yeah. make okay. sure you, you you have the right spouse first. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before you combine your portfolio. Okay, I'm gonna. This this question uh, I, I think MJ also knows this rule uh. I don't know whether the rule applies or not. You know, in in uh in a marriage right, they said for the women right. Her money is her money. Yeah. And then her husband's money. I better let you finish your drink first before you split out. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Her money is her money. Her husband's money is also her money. Does that rule apply or not? 
I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. If it doesn't apply, uh, just say. Uh, I would. I don't know. We we never really have that discussion yet. <laughs> so, but uh, I would say. Hopefully, we come to a, a, a consensus <laughs> buying something big. Lah. Uh, right. So far, we don't buy anything super big. So, uh, right. you know, she, she, right. she, she, she don't have to ask for permission when she spends something. I don't have to ask for her permission when I spend something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but you know, you saying this, uh, Stanley, I remember you were telling me about uh, you got a phone for your wife and it was an mm. Android phone. I still remember this story. And then she said that it was, it was clunky and it wasn't working well. And then all of a sudden, you decided to buy an iPhone for your wife. And then you got a pack on the cheek for it because you bought an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether MJ knows this story. Uh, no. yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's the story of why I ended up investing in Apple. Like, because uh, <laughs> I have been uh, Android and a PC user all my life. Uh, I, I tried an iPhone before, I think way in iPhone 2 or iPhone wow. 3 or something. It's 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, but I, I just hated it. Uh, as a user, I hated it. Mm. I, I don't like the uh, Apple ecosystem. So I, I have been using Android for, for a long time. And the story is I, I bought my wife a Xiaomi phone mm. uh, because Xiaomi just uh, is a new up and coming company and I re- find it interesting. I bought it one for her, mm. uh, but she hated it. And <laughs> she is a brand she never heard before also. Okay. Right? So it, it's sort of... Uh, Maybe to her, it's like buying a Pasamala brand for her because she <laughs> never heard of that brand at the time. Uh, uh, so I realized my mistake. So for the next year birthday, I bought an iPhone for her and the reaction is totally different. <laughs> and that's when I realized that iPhone is actually more than just the electronic. It's, it is the gift. It's the, it is the electronic gift that you want to be giving to someone else mm. uh, as, a, as a present, right? And so it is more of uh, almost like uh, a branded Ta- uh, a branded stuff rather mm. than just a pure electronics. So every time someone want to argue that you know uh, Android is better because they are more powerful or more user, I think they are missing the point. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so, it's like it's like the Hermes of iPhone, uh, phones. Uh. it's like the Hermes yeah. or the Louis Vuitton of phones. Uh. you know, if you give a Louis Vuitton bag versus let's say a Braun Buffel, which is Quality is almost as good, but you know, if you give an LV versus a, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's totally different. Uh, yeah. Yep. Okay, I promise this is going to be the last questions about money and relationship, right? But one big <laughs> turning into a yeah, marriage. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but I ask this la, I think I think this is something that a lot of viewers who are budding value investors need to know. Uh, one of the biggest difference, and there are a lot of similarities, but one of the biggest difference between a marriage and stock investing, and I hope this is something you agree with, uh, is that. Uh, you cannot diversify, mm. right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so as you rightly pointed out, who you who you choose, right, is uh, very very crucial. And you know, in stocks, we have criterias like you have yours, where you make sure that there's a long runway and things like that. And you know, how should people who want to create wealth in stocks, through especially the value investing method, what are some of the, for lack of better word, criterias that you you need to have in your in your in your experience when you choose a, a, a spouse. 
when I choose a spouse. Because mm. <laughs> it's going to be very important. Oh, right? wow, MJ. Yes, yes. Uh, it's becoming more of a Last personal question, question for <laughs> yourself. Uh. <laughs> it's more for him. It's, and it's more for our listeners. Hey, Stanley, me and you, we cannot portfolio, we cannot portfolio allocate, we cannot yeah, do the cannot diversification. You know. Unless you, unless you, you know, you, yeah, you, yeah. you know, <laughs> I I I would say I would say uh marriage and portfolio maybe one one side of it is quite similar which is if you have a concentrated portfolio <laughs> uh it's quite similar to having a marriage you either make it or you don't make it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh on the other side if you have a diversified uh portfolio uh, to me is better but if you have a diversified marriage uh, most likely you'll die a thousand deaths yeah. <laughs> uh, when choosing a spouse, I don't know. Uh, um, I just I just chose the first girl that say yes to me. <laughs> All right, there you have there it. You that have is it. the key criteria <laughs> that works. Probably won't work for stocks. Definitely a relationship is yeah. possible. So now let's go to diversification, right? And w- one thing you kind of differ a lot from a lot of value investors is concentration. Yeah. So to give our listeners a sense, and if you listen to our previous podcast with different guests, they have their thoughts on diversification yeah, we, as well. We, very, quite, quite good. Uh, yeah, it's very, diver- yeah, very, very diverse. Very diverse set of views about yes. diversification. Mm, yes. And a lot of people say that to really do well, uh, you need to concentrate. I think Buffett says it quite a lot. And by concentrate, right, let's call it no more than 10 or 15 securities or stocks, right? Yeah. Mm. I know in your case, that you like to hit that 25, 30, sometimes maybe even 35 stock kind of portfolio, which on average means you have, uh, you know, two to 3% in a single stock. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what do you think about diversification basically from your point of view? Okay. Uh, when I think about diversification, uh, I take into consideration one more aspect where I think maybe some investors don't take into consideration, which is the time needed for me to either research the stocks and also to uh, monitor my portfolio. Mm. The, the time spent uh, on, on, the, on the return on effort. Um, and from researching stocks, I realized that uh, in the past, how I research is I really deep dive very, very deep into a company. Mm. I could spend months on a company and I could, you know, dive down into learning about that company, uh, family members. I Google all their family members, you know, uh, find out who, who they are, what, what, any news about them, any negative news about them. And I might even do search on some of their subsidiaries, say mm. the, their accounts on group. Then I, I might even uh, go and buy the private records on some of the subsidiaries, uh, whether it's uh, really making money or, or not mm. to that extent. Uh, and I always, always uh, will reach out to the management either to talk to them uh, or just to have people inside to understand more about the business. Uh, but what I found out is a lot of time, uh, this also kind of, sh- uh, uh, the, the 80-20 rule kind of apply. Mm. So I can do uh, 80% of the uh, the research that or 100% of the effort putting in, but actually the first 20% that I did uh, sort of already solidify my thesis, mm. right? And the rest, although I do 80% more, it doesn't really help me increase my uh, earnings by 
the additional 80%. Mm. Uh, so I ended up just uh, uh, f- feel that I don't need to spend so much time in researching on, on each company. Uh, the most is I just understand the, the, the top 20%, the, what is most critical mm. about it. And then I diversify my portfolio. So I have a lot of company, yes. Uh, I might not know every nuances about them, mm. but I know the basic fundamentals of why I invest in them and mm. where are where are they heading. Mm. Uh, and because of that, I am quite comfortable in, you know, I don't have to monitor them too much because I look at the long-term view as long as they... They are they are they are moving towards the right direction, and the world is moving towards that direction. Then I have nothing much to to worry about. And, mm. You know, I spend the rest of my time look doing other things. <laughs> understand, understand. And that uh, is it fair for me to say that prior to moving into this style of investing, uh, when you were doing those deep dives, eighty percent of the work, uh, was it a more concentrated portfolio back then as well? then only you switch into a more diversified portfolio or that approach has always been the same all this while? Yes, uh, when I was re- uh, more doing more deep dive, I have a much concentrated portfolio, I would say, uh, and maybe not super concentrated, but I would say less than 10. Okay. Uh, it, it just is a function of the time that I have because everyone has 24 hours, right? Mm. If I'm spending so much time on one company, it's impossible for me to research like 40 companies I see. Uh, in detail. So uh, it's just a function uh, of time and I only be able to maintain and monitor 10 companies. But I would spend more time monitoring that 10 company compared to now, uh, you know, monitoring the 40 companies. And many people would uh, would say, okay, you, you, you mentioned the Buffett uh, reference yeah. yes Buffett uh, it, at the beginning one said that you know you should have be more concentrated Charlie Munger also said you know that, that diversification is uh, for idiots not, right, yeah it? for idiots right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you look at Buffett you know Berkshire is a very very diversified company Agreed. Yep. and you know he owned more than 200 plus businesses and the majority of the Berkshire wealth comes from you know the last decade yeah uh so you would have to argue whether diversification create more wealth or concentration create more wealth. Mm, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. a very interesting point. Yeah, I, I have one follow-up with regards to this uh, and I try to put on a devil advocate's kind of hat, uh, Stanley. If you're doing this strategy in which is a very diversified portfolio and in a way, which we will talk about later in more yeah. detail about the, the, the stocks and the kind, uh, we, I know you're big in, in China and in US and Hong Kong. Why not buy an ETF? Why I know you're a fan of ETF, but now you are individually picking stocks, putting into a quite diversified portfolio. What would be the argument that you would say for someone who says, why put why even put in the effort? I just go for an ETF. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yep. Uh that's a very uh, good alternative, I would say. If mm. today uh when I was investing, ETF wasn't that big. Okay. Mm. Uh, so I ended up creating sort of like you said, my own ETF. But if you say if I'm starting again today, mm. I would say ETF is is a is a very attractive option for me mm. uh, and my style of investing. Uh, why I still end up not investing in ETF is because uh, I for one I enjoy the the process of investing, and also I I when I look at ETF sometimes I feel that uh, I might not be that interested in some companies, mm-hmm. right? And many, many ETF actually have more than 30 companies. Uh, they, they have uh, 
you know close to a hundred. Sometimes uh, some ETF they have two, two, three hundred companies. Mm. Uh, and I might not like all of them. I understand. Uh, so I rather pick and choose of uh, what kind, what company that I I prefer. I see. And because I invest through say the uh, I invest in mainly four markets, right? Uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and US. Uh, it's hard to find an ETF that actually just invests in all this market or Understand. even just Hong Kong and US. Mm. Uh, you don't really find a good uh, mix la, in a way. Mix, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, companies that maybe 50% US, 50% Hong Kong yeah. or China, Greater China. Right. Um, you know, most ETF are at the end of the day still more geared towards the US market. The yeah. bigger ones at least. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a very good point in a way. If you buy an ETF, the index is already determined for you. In a yep. way, S and P five hundred. You can't have an S and P five hundred mixed with the H, uh, Hong or Hang Seng mm. index or mixed with uh, China index. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Mm. So I I think related to the way you diversify. So we talk about how many stocks you will own. Now let's talk a little bit about the the way you you will diversify. And I remember you saying once that, and tell me if it's still the case, that you like to populate your portfolio with like 70% large cap sort of stable companies. Uh, I, I believe the word you used when I when I heard this was income generating. And then the remaining 30% are more riskier types, maybe the business model not as proven. And so my question is, um, if relating to like large caps, right? Usually people say that if it's really a large cap, how much more can it grow, mm. right? Whereas like the potential they have already has already been achieved, right? That's why they are dividend mm. paying and income generating. Mm. So what are your thoughts about how you actually split that pie up into these uh, sections? Okay. Um, I, I will say I, do, uh, I wouldn't split it necessarily in terms of say income or growth. Mm, mm. Uh, how I see it is I try to look at companies that have a unique business model mm. that maybe is really one of a kind. Uh, sometimes it could be big, sometimes it could be small. Mm. Uh, maybe I give an example um, that, you know, I, I could argue that a company like Microsoft is very big, but it has a very unique uh, business model mm. that almost every company, every businesses would somehow touches on Microsoft software. Mm. Uh, and 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 so in a way it is a, a key enabler for the economy, right? And that's not going away anytime soon. Uh, on, on the other side, I could say that a company like maybe now now up and coming, uh, like Shopee, right? C Group. Mm. Uh, it also has a. It, it is still not a, a very very established company, mm -hmm. but I would say it is still a very interesting company where it it, it has a dominant, uh, position. Mm in a field that is fast growing mm. uh, as, as a sector. So I, I would say both are companies that I might consider and have it in my portfolio, uh, but I don't see it in, in a way that is either income or growth, but rather mm. the business model, whether I, I feel that there is a big advantage of its business model outside of uh, other companies. Mm. And it, it links back to the question of ETF actually, yeah. why I don't choose ETF, right? It, I, oh, I don't choose ETF, but I set ETF uh, returns or the mix as my benchmark. Mm. So I always look at the company and I say, would I rather own this company or 
You know, does it really is it unique enough for me to warrant to to to, to just buy this company instead of just buy an ETF? I understand. Right. So if it's not super unique, then I rather just choose the ETF. I understand. Yeah. And on the point where you say size uh, is different, yeah, right? Large as, cap as, and all as that, yeah. Size cap, you, yeah, you can't really grow. I think it's it might be true for smaller markets like Malaysia or in Singapore, but if you look out to Greater China or US, uh, I haven't find that to be the case. Mm. Uh, case in point, say Apple again, right? Uh, yeah. I've been hearing Apple is too big since it's at four hundred million, at four hundred billion market cap. Yeah, then it become one billion. Then people say yeah, one trillion. Wow, already, already one, uh, one trillion. Yeah, <laughs> one trillion. People say, oh, it's already one trillion. How big can it get? Two trillion. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> then now it's at two trillion. <laughs> then people will say, how big can it get? Really? Yeah. Uh, already two trillion. Yeah. But the the fact is, the the entire market is global, right? Apple mm. is one of the few companies that even has a big market share in China. Correct. Right. Not not many Western companies can say that yeah. they are big both in the Western world and also in China. Right. Apple is just one of the very very few. And uh, plus, uh, money is always depreciating. Mm. So one trillion today might sound like a lot, but you know, one trillion ten years down the road might not be that big. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a question? Yeah. Uh, actually, moving on to the nuances, and I want to actually dive deeper into the differences because you you mentioned earlier in your library. Uh, what do you call it? Episodes or or or, or, uh, or journey, and mm. you couldn't find uh, books that were related very much to the nuances of investing in Asia. And I like to hear your thoughts. And following on to that, uh, there's this book by Chris Meyer called Hundred to One, the bag. Uh, Hundred to One, okay. Yeah, Hundred to One, and he listed a few criteria with regards to uh, owner-run companies as well as versus that of, you know, hired guns and all that. What Where do you think that blend? Because in Asia, you find a lot of owner-run companies, first-generation families, and then moving on. And then you see in the US where there's more institutionalization to the business. Was that some of the nuances you, you, you saw and what other nuances you found? Yeah. Uh, in terms of investing in Asia company, that's, that's one of the things that I think we have to... Uh, take note of which is uh, in the US they always prefer to have owner run companies uh, mm. and they feel that owner run company would be much better the, the, the owner will take more ownership to it uh, I haven't really found that to be the case for Asia mm. uh, some of the reasons uh, I speculate might be because uh, at this point of time I think many Asian management uh, or founder-led companies might not have the, um, I guess, philosophy that thinking that uh, we have to treat shareholders as an equal partner, mm. right? Sometimes they would still hang on to the idea that this company is mine. Mm. Uh, I created this company. Why shouldn't I just make all the shots, you know? Yeah. Uh, why do I have to think about the minority shareholders even when they own 100 shares? Uh, that is... My son is here. Hello. Yeah. Hi, <laughs> Stanley Jr. <Yeah. laughs> I like your teeth. <laughs> Must be seven, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I lost my turn. No, okay. no, no, uh, yeah, so, yeah. so uh, okay, yeah. So, so that's, that's one key point where I feel it's not so important, mm. right? Uh, I'm not saying that all owner-led companies are, 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 are bad, but some out there 
just don't have the right philosophy when it comes to managing minority shareholders. Mm. And number two is, I think because of the dual class share structure. I see. In the US, they can, uh, the founders let, they can keep growing the company by raising more capital, but still remain control of the business by yes. having a dual class shares. Yes. Right? So they, they, they don't mind diluting their shares to 2%, 3% while they're still in control. Yeah. Uh, whereas in Asia, apart from Hong Kong, right, uh, or maybe China, um, the rest of the region, we don't have that kind of dual class structure any, anymore, anyway. So to a founding family, to a founding management, they still want to hang on to that majority stake yeah. in the company. Yeah. And that will prevent them from growing too big because maybe to, to grow to that next stage, they need to raise another few hundred million to have the capital to reach that point. Yeah. And they don't want to dilute their shareholdings below below a, a certain threshold. Yeah. Yeah. So they end up they have to rely on their retained earnings to keep growing. Mm. So end up their growth will become slower. Understand? Uh, right. Yeah. What what so that's what are, just my speculation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are the biggest differences in between, you know, uh book that and spouses value investing in the West versus what you see in the East? Because so far I've in my in my very short sampling of books that I've read, uh, I think one was uh, what's this guy's name, uh, Doctor Neo Sunkian. Yeah, yeah. Doctor mm-hmm. Neo Sunkian, who wrote a book in the eighties, and then another a few books by Malaysian. But if you talk about it, there's not many Malaysian or Asian-based writers that actually talk about it. So, what do you think are the key differences in 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 um, the styles? Uh, the nuances of the companies you invest in in Asia versus the West. I mean, yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think this goes uh, follow up on just now what we're discussing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I I would say some of the key things that maybe to the to to the West or to the US market is not that important, but it become a much bigger issue in Asia, right? Things like uh, your family. Uh, ownership uh, structure mm. and also one big thing is regulational risk right? mm. to the US maybe when I read through uh, investment books they might touch on regulation risk but it's never a huge issue for them to consider mm. right but when you're investing even like, say for greater China or even even uh, in, in Southeast Asia th- that is a key point for us to take note of yes. Uh, and you know we we're looking at uh, Alibaba right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even you know the largest company in in the whole of China, they can uh, face very very huge consequences if they you know are on the wrong side of the law. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is a big thing that I think uh, is is lacking okay. in, in in some of some of the books that they talk about. Okay. And uh, also we have to look at the government involvement in some businesses mm. because the, the level of uh, government-linked companies or SOEs in Asia is quite big. Yes. And and because of that, the the they they operate not purely for the merits of profits. And so the economics of that is different and how they affect the market can also be different. Right? We've seen that in, in China uh when when they're <clears throat> When they're trying to stimulate the the economy without worrying, you know whether they are bringing over capacity to the market, they're just flooding the market all over mm. uh, with with their commodity products. Um, 
that's that's kind of uh can happen can happen in Asia when you don't necessarily have the entire the what do we call the the, the free market uh forces to economics are right yeah. not pure capitalism in a way yeah, like. yeah 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 okay great um can we go into the his history in Motley Fool now yeah sure. yeah uh, actually actually I yeah. think before Motley Fool right yeah. uh so you, you talk about Asia and I think when we talk about Asia, really, when people people say Asia because they want to be inclusive, lah. But what they're really <laughs> saying, right? <laughs> what they're really saying is China, right? That's really what people say when uh, you know you should invest in Asia. And so you know, from your point of view, right? Uh, you know, or, or rather, let me just say, right? There's a lot of reasons people give why they shouldn't invest in China. Mm. There's no reason why they should invest in China, right? This is a very polarizing topic, uh, China. So. And I know that you're pretty big into Hong Kong or China when it comes to your portfolio. So what is your reasons for, what are your reasons for being in China, investing in China today? Right. Uh, yeah, for for one, I would say that uh, you're quite right when people say <laughs> investing in Asia, they're mostly referring to, to China. Uh, but... It is also because China so far has proven that they have the most accessible market, at mm. least for foreign investors, uh, for growth for for growth market lah, mm. Right, I'm I'm very interested in the Indian market as well, but mm. their stock market is just not that accessible mm. uh, for a foreigner, mm. and uh, that's that's one of the key that you know hopefully that will change in the future. Uh, but China right now because of the 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 Shanghai and Shenzhen and Hong Kong connect. So it's quite easy for us to buy even A shares and B shares market stocks. Uh, and why I end up focusing on China is number one, I'm quite optimistic about them. And uh, because of their large economy, mm. uh, I remember reading uh, the Robert Koch's uh, latest book. Uh, the memoirs. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase a little bit lah, but mm. I remember it goes something like uh, the why he ended up moving to China as well is because when he was growing in Malaysia and Singapore, he realized that there's, there's always a ceiling. Right? He can grow and grow and then he reach a saturation point. Mm. But in China, it's so big that in a lifetime, you will never reach that saturation point. Mm. Right? And that's kind of stuck, stuck to me. And it's also a, a view that I... I also agree too, uh, which is because the market is so big and we see now, right, uh, huge Chinese companies are, are coming global as well, yeah. right? Not just, not just in, you know, ByteDance with TikTok or even hardware like Xiaomi. Uh, they are becoming more global companies and this means that uh, their economics, their addressable market will continuously be bigger and bigger. Mm. And uh, it, it is a, a it is these are companies that might grow, you know, for for the rest of our lifetime or even my children's lifetime and still not finish growing. Mm. So so I rather uh, going back to I rather I prefer to just buy one time and forget about it. So I rather just buy one Chinese fast growing and long term growth company compared to if I have to uh, buy a Singapore local company that grow to a certain point after a few years, it, it'll be dominating and then I have to choose another one mm. to start all over again, right? The runway is longer. That's what you're trying yeah. to say. Okay. Right. Yeah. 
Okay, so now we go to Motley Fool and what you do at Value Invest yeah. Asia. So John, do you have a specific question? Yeah, um, actually in the introduction, we forgot to uh, state that she, he is a trained engineer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, oh. and, and, and it was more of the transition from being an engineer, getting his first job into Motley Fool. That was what I was trying to link. So maybe can you share with us a little bit about your journey into Motley Fool? Um, sure. what, what did you enjoy doing at Motley Fool and uh, was mentorship or guidance uh, in your in your Motley Fool journey important to where you are as an investor today? Yep. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, so we have to go quite a long way back. Uh. Mm. Uh, like you <laughs> say, I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm a very uh, niche field engineer. I'm an automotive engineer. Mm. Uh, Mainly, I chose it because I love cars so much. <laughs> but then I realized that you can't really make money in cars <laughs> in this part of the world. And then you become Gilly uh, Bossa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when I after I graduated, uh, my first job was actually with Oriental Holdings, mm, Honda. Yeah, automotive. Yeah, their automotive uh, division. Um, and um, after working there, I I realized that you know uh, I really cannot make much money. In, in the automotive field, uh, mm. at least uh, here here in Southeast Asia. So uh, I, I decided that I need a career change. And so I took up the CFA program. Mm. Um, and uh, I would say I, I sort of networked my way to my first job in Singapore. Mm. Uh, and if some if someone is thinking of having a career change to, to, to the finance line, uh, I, I would say that is probably the easiest way mm. uh, is to join the CFA program and network your way to the, <laughs> That's where you to, met Manhong also, right? Job. Yeah, yeah. So uh, all of us, uh, we met from the CFA society. And uh, from there, uh, once you're in the industry, I got to know a, uh, a few more people and I, I, I met up with some of the uh, first few staff of Motley Fu. And that's when I uh, sort of joined them uh, into their new new uh, new outfit in Singapore. Mm. Um, I, I would say they were just at the beginning of starting the office mm. uh, when I first joined them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how was your journey there? I mean, what did you start doing? Um, and, right. And what was your most momentous occasions? Or And was there any spots that you would have, you know, you think you could have done better? Right. Uh, so in Motley Fool, uh, my main job was uh, doing research and writing out that research to showcase to the world, so mm. through their website. Uh, and during that time, I would say it, uh, it teaches me a lot because once we write and then because of Motley Fool from the US, we get um, more, uh, I would say, feedback on on our investing style and I, I learned more different type of investing style mm -hmm. and that's where I sort of fine-tune uh, my current investing style to to where it is now mm. uh, because there's just a wide diverse field of investors out there you know yeah. from from my uh, Motley Fool journey and I get to know all of them mm. and I, I, I realized that you know there is a better way to invest and I try to incorporate that into into my own investing style um, but one of the key things that I learned uh, while my time in Motley Fool uh, from, from, of course, the 
the head of Mollyfoo Singapore last time, uh, Dr. David Kuo, was actually on communication. Mm. Right. He he's not just a great investor, but he's a great communicator, right? If you listen to him, you know, before you you understand what I mean. Uh, he's just able to have the ability to convey, you know, maybe boring and complicated investing stuff into very simple language and easy to digest uh, format. Mm. And that's something that I, 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 I really admire him for and I, I, I really uh, learn a lot from. I see. Um, and, and, and from there, I kind of... Uh, fall in love with the this kind of business model la. I see uh, the publishing online publishing style of uh, business model and that's that's when uh, when I decided to to start out on my own uh, I, I decided to learn take take what I learned from them uh, into the new business I see yeah right so I know I know Stanley's time is a bit short yeah so we only I only have really a couple questions only, yeah. Yeah. The, the the first question is you know now that you you know you said that you've transitioned into more of a business owner right and you know Buffett said that to be a good investor you know you should be a business owner because you get to see things very differently what do you think have been some of the big revelations you've had running yeah. a business right uh I'm not sure if I should call Value Invest Asia still as a business. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it feels more like uh, self-employment, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, but um, I, I do feel that running a business teach you a lot of things lah, because mm. uh, when, when you have to do everything by yourself uh, and you, a, a key thing is I, I found that most business person are natural optimists. Mm. Right, and that's what I I like about uh, the business community, which is you know you don't get uh, very pessimistic people or you know mm -hmm. down down uh, people who are just there to negative uh, You don't get negative. Get you negative might be crazy people, yeah. but definitely not <laughs> negative people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, you know it, it makes a more exciting world and happier yeah. world to to live in. Uh, second thing is I I realized that. If you want to be a really, really successful business person, uh, maybe like Elon Musk, right? Um, that kind of mentality and the kind of drive that you have uh, is something special. Yeah. I think not many people has it. Uh, I certainly doesn't have that kind of level of drive. Mm. Uh, and I realized that uh, in investing and in, in doing business, right? Uh, sometimes I would kind of disagree with Buffett that a good businessman will be a good investor mm, and, right. and vice versa. Mainly because in business, when you are doing, uh, you sort of have to put in, uh, you can't sort of equate your results to your action and your effort, mm. right? So the mm. more you do, the more you put in or the more you hire people to do, uh, you're expecting better and better results. Yeah. But sometimes in investing, the more you do, uh, mm. it's like it can actually be worse. Yeah, right. Yeah, so true. The, the 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 good. Sometimes you have to take a step back. Yeah, and just let it be. So uh, I think that is uh sort of like a, maybe a cultural crash between good investors and good uh business person. Mm. Yeah, uh, which you know uh, sooner or later down the f down the road maybe it's something you guys have to decide 
whether you want to be a better uh, business yeah. person, you know, or uh, just a better investor. Yeah, I think it makes sense because I think as a business owner, because you have control, right? So yeah. you see something wrong and then you're like, okay, let's go fix it. Yeah. Mm. But in investing, you're like, something's wrong and then you get crickets. Unless you're an activi- activist, activist investor, investor. Like you can buy yeah. a big chunk of the company. That's very. That's a very interesting uh, insight. It's like in a. It's like in an. You're sitting in an aeroplane. Yeah. You're a business owner. You're in the pilot seat, la. But if you're an investor, you're in the passenger seat, right? Even if the plane is going down, right? You cannot say, "Hey, pilot, wake up!" You know, kind of. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. You, you kind of have to just take the parachute and just <laughs> yeah, run away, just jump, right? Yeah. So you talk about you know uh, what you do right now. You, the, the the small but you know comfortable outfit of Value Invest Asia. So let's move from something small to something big, which is uh, since October, I, I believe, right? Uh, you are October 2020. October 2020, you are a director of a public listed company in Malaysia, right? Uh, Pastec International. So mm. I think, um, you know, we leave all the juicy stuff to the end of the podcast. <laughs> but basically, you know, can you share with us really, you know, what, what does Pastec International do exactly? Because yeah. I know it's not the most consumer-facing company yeah. out there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, what do you think? Uh, how how can you whet our appetite? You know, for <laughs> for, for best tech in the next week. What's going to happen? What's what do you think is? What are the plans? You know, for best tech. Right. Um. So yeah, you you rightly pointed out. Uh, since uh, last end of last year, uh, I was appointed as uh, ED into Pestec International. And as full disclosure, Pestec was actually founded by my father mm-hmm. and also my cousin. Um, and uh, they are the two key persons that has built up the business to where it is today. Mm. Uh, but in, 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 in a summary form, Pestec is basically an basically, uh, integrated electrical power company. Mm. So we build anything from substation, transmission line, you know, uh, solar power plant, uh, anything that do do with uh, electricity, mm-hmm. uh, most likely we are able to do it, uh, and we focus a lot on the regional business, uh, regional uh, market where our largest market right now is still Malaysia and Cambodia, mm. right where we have a presence, um, and yeah. So uh, I would say we started out as just a contractor for substation mm. uh, for in Malaysia. But we have since diversified uh, more and more into other areas uh, in electrical transmission lines, uh, in system upgrades for even power station. Mm. And we recently just got our first uh, solar IPP uh, mm. in Cambodia as well, we are, where we are building it up. Um, so it's a wide, wide range. And we also uh, has started uh, a division to look into the new form of uh, electricity distribution, maybe for EV cars, we have uh, charges for EV cars and also what we call microgrid where for maybe uh, very, very rural areas in the, in the Kampong where uh, sending electrical grid into there just to serve a few hundred uh, uh, residents might not be very feasible for the, uh, for the national grid then we will help them uh, build up what we call a microgrid, where it's a combination of solar cells and uh, solar capacitor uh, to store the energy, to give power to to the people in the rural areas. Uh. So these are roughly what what uh, what we offer right now. 
Yeah, in, in an integrated electrical engineering solutions provider, I would say that. Mm, yeah, right? yeah. So yeah. you're so you're you're right. We don't have uh, much exposure to the consumer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There consumer was, line. There was one time, uh, MJ, I was going down to Kapong and I saw the sign and I took a photo. Hey, hey, I sent it to him. Because <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> they were the only consumer <laughs> consumer facing. <laughs> yeah, I'm even surprised that it's even there, right? Yeah, you know, because it was next to the LRT line. Oh, no wonder. Yeah, they were doing, <laughs> yeah, that's the reason why. Okay, I think that's a lot to look forward to. So, you know, you guys, you know, if you guys are interested, do check uh, Pastec out um, and uh, not buy cell call, remember, guys. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, look. Stanley, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, the, the only shame is that, you know, we couldn't, we cannot extend the podcast yeah. a little longer. And, uh, you know, looking forward to see you for part two. Yeah. Thank you so much Definitely. for your time, Stanley. And before that, where can people find oh, you? Oh, yes. Actually? More important. Where can people find <laughs> you? Where can people find you? Give us a shout right. out. Okay. So, uh, the easiest way for you guys is to just look me up on YouTube. Uh, I think MJ and John has said that my channel is Invest with Stanley. Uh, but if you want to look into some of our written reports, uh, you can also check out our website at valueinvestasia.com yeah. where you can... Uh, as John pointed out, get our book. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. I got the book with you guys. I've already read it yeah. years ago. Yeah. Definitely worth reading. All straight from the mouth of a veteran. Yeah. Right? Otai, otai. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Stanley. And guys, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed this podcast as we did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, see you in the next podcast. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.